Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Historians are supposed to be chroniclers of change and sternly warn against the claim that things have always been that way. But the American dormitory makes one question historicism. Students are now very, very different than their predecessors of even 50 years ago, let alone 300 years ago. Yet the residence hall remains and thrives, often in ways that the young men of the College of New Jersey in 1772 might recognize. My guest, Carla Yanni, picking up on the ideas of Marta Goodman, argues that this is because physical space is not simply a backdrop for college students. The two are, in fact, mutually const- constitutive. They build each other. For, as architectural critic Winston Churchill once said, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. Carla Yanni is professor of art history at Rutgers University, specializing in the social history of architecture in 19th and 20th century Britain and the United States. Her most recent book is Living on Campus, an Architectural History of the American Dormitory, published by the University of Minnesota Press, and it is the subject of our conversation today. Carla Yanni, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, very rarely do monographs uh, make me nostalgic, uh, but this did. It got me thinking about my own dormitory experience, and I thought we could begin by by, by trading because I, I, I uh, reminiscences because I I suspect you thought about yours when you were writing this. Um, it's hard not to. Um, one of the reasons people become professors and and get their PhDs is because they liked college. <laughs> so, uh, what was your dormitory experience? Well, my dormitory experience is a little bit um, unexpected in the following way. So I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and I absolutely loved it. I was a transfer student, um, and I started there as a sophomore. And they placed transfer students in these funny little um, sort of condos that looked weirdly enough like ski chalets. (laughs) They put two transfer students in with three seniors which meant the only people you met were going to be gone. The, you know, the three seniors were going to be gone the following year. Um, and I would have been much more better off. I would have been much better off in terms of meeting people had I been placed on a traditional double-loaded corridor with 50 other students. And instead, I was in this very apartment-like setting. I thought it was very elegant at the time because we had a dishwasher, but it was really hard to meet people. And I think at later on, I was the resident advisor for that whole um, condominium complex. And so I tried to create community within that set of buildings because I knew that I felt a lack when I got there. and that, that was also my introduction to student affairs, which figures prominently in the book. So actually, I don't think I had an ideal uh, residence hall experience, although I did love my roommates, and I, and I still keep in touch with them, and I, I do love Wesleyan. Uh, but it was not an ideal situation, and they stopped doing that a few years later, stopped putting yeah. the uh, transfers in with the older students. 
Well, we should talk about there's really fascinating aspects to that already, um, sort of data. I, I refer listeners back, I'll put this in the show notes, back in episode 56, we talked with the sociologist Dan Chambliss about fantastic book he co-wrote with a student, uh, How College Works. And one of the things they discovered was college works well for you if you live on a long corridor, uh, you meet more people, as opposed to the apartment model. Um, and that certainly is borne out by even your story and my experience and the experience of, I think, hundreds of people. Um, just to, to, to come up with my experience, um, I went to Johns Hopkins. At the time, uh, Hopkins is very proud. We were very proud that only first-year students lived on campus. Everyone else had to live off campus. Um, and I lived in the classic, it was a 1919 building, the Alumni Memorial Residences. It had been the first, I think, undergraduate dormitory on campus, and we lived in a long corridor. I was a little odd we because you could only get to our floor uh, by a staircase. Um, so it was a very short corridor, but we, that made us very close. Um, my best friend lived down the hall, and still my best friend. Um, and the rest of us kind of kept up. Uh, because you only lived with people on campus your first year, you tended to keep those friendships. Um, through the next three years, um, rather than continuing to meet new people. It's a little odd. So that was kind of, in some ways, your cohort for the rest of the four years of, of college. Um, we did not have air conditioning, I should say. Um, in 1987, it was only the brand new apartment dorms that had air conditioning. They were very swish. Um, the Some upperclassmen lived off campus in Hopkins-owned buildings, which now have food courts and air conditioning, but at the time were based in the Moss Isley of Baltimore. Um, they were the wretched hive of scum and villainy, um, and they, they were awful. And they were, yeah, they, were, they had not been rehabbed since the 1930s, probably. Um, and that was, that was our dormitory experience. It was, it was completely natural to us. Um, in retrospect, it seems so primitive. Well, it is interesting that um, the luxury dormitories that are available today often seem absurd to parents uh, who, you know, didn't have air conditioning or they, the bathroom was in the basement or, you know, many things that were yeah. common uh, from the beginning of residence halls all the way up through the 1980s, um, but now would be a, a, a tough sell. Although- yeah. As many parents have noticed that the residence hall that's uh, on the bus <laughs> back when there were bus tours is not the res you know, not everybody can live in the brand new residence hall. So some no. incoming mm. students are going to be in the old, the old residence the, halls, whether that means 1920s, 1950s, 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, step back and look at the sort of the wide angle picture of, of the book. Um I, what I particularly love about this uh, is, is you, you've, you've given a history of American higher education via the residence hall, and it tells us so much about the, about the institutions that built them and the intellectual culture of the moment at various stages. So in the broad picture, what can residence halls tell us about that? Well, residence halls are... Um... Not, not unique to the United States, but they are far more important in the United States than in almost any other country. The concept of American colleges as a place of networking, as a, uh, a, a rite of passage where young people become adults, move away from home, 
make friends, make business connections, that networking side, all of the things that happen outside the classroom, that's always been very, very important in the United States and, and in the colonies. And when people would ask me this question before the pandemic, I would point to the admission scandal and the University of Southern California, right? So you've got um, Lori Laughlin and her husband, they have a daughter who is, well, first of all, they're already rich, so they don't need to go to college to get richer. The, the one daughter already had the career that she wanted, which was a full-time YouTuber and influencer. Um, she had already said on YouTube that when she went to college, she wasn't going to go to class. And yet her parents were willing to spend half a million dollars in bribes to get her to go to college. Now, that's because going to college has, in this that case, has little to do with the academics and everything to do with the networking. Um, now, um, since the pandemic, we are seeing so many colleges take risks, calculated risks, but risks nonetheless, to send to ask students to come back to campus, you know, starting now, this week, next week, starting in the middle of September. And it, even though in, in many cases, the classes will be online, but they're still bringing students back to live in the residence halls. So that really underscores how essential the residential experience is to many American colleges. So the first, American College is Harvard, and the first residence hall is at Harvard. So how did Harvard replicate um, Cambridge uh, in, in England? Uh, how did it replicate the previous residential experience uh, that the founders of Harvard were used to? And how did it do something different? The first purpose-built uh, dwelling for students at Harvard was not for white students. It was called the Indian College and it was for Native American students. It had been paid for by a religious society in Britain that wanted to encourage um, missionaries to work with and convert Native Americans. And since the white students wouldn't live with Native Americans, a separate building was needed. So from the very beginning of the history of residence halls, the, the buildings act to foster fellowship, but they also act to exclude. They create categories and hierarchies of students. And how are the event, when is, when are, when, how do I say, when are the white students, when do they have a dormitory? A few years later, there's a um, uh, construction of a building called Stoughton Hall. Um, we can also look in, this would be the period before the, um, uh, before the revolution, the, there were several colleges. Most of the time, the structures were multi-purpose buildings. We can think about the so-called Wren building at William and Mary, um, some of the early buildings at Harvard and Yale as well. They contain student residences, um, Sometimes individual rooms were called dormitories, which back then meant, you know, eight beds in a room or 10 beds in a room. But those buildings also included the professor's apartments, the president's house, classrooms, recitation rooms, a chapel, a library, a kitchen, 
um, a small dining room. So they were multifunctional buildings and students lived inside of them. They weren't purpose built as residence halls. Yeah. And, and they also, um, certainly in the case of the Wren building, which I know more about than most, um, they, it was by far the largest building in the colony. And since it was the first building really built in the new capital of Williamsburg, um, James Blair, the first president of William and Mary, was often was spent years in high rage and dudgeon, which was his normal condition, um, because the government was taking it over. The governor lived there, guests lived there, uh, the legislature would sometimes meet there, the governor's council certainly met there. It was just so convenient to meet inside the college building and use it for purposes other than education. Yeah, that's a good point. I think um, I think NASA Hall was also the largest at Princeton mm -hmm. was also the largest building in New Jersey for a long time. Even the colonies, I think. Yes, maybe that's right. And um, so these uh, these are multi-purpose buildings. The Wren Building was supposed to be the uh, foundation of a quadrangle, which never they never had the money to get built. We'll get to quadrangles in a bit because that. Um, that doesn't really happen in, in the colonies at first. But what are what are when the, what are the living arrangements? I, I recall uh, in your book you've got well actually I have it right here. Uh, you've got a diagram of the Harvard rooms, and there's like a, a room uh, for a student, and it uh, an individual each one has their own room. But there's also a study and sort of like a closet. That's right. So the I think the plan that you're looking at there. So there's one room that's a um, has the fireplace in it, and that's a little. Mm -hmm. um, that would be what we might think of as a living area or a parlor or um, maybe that we might call the study because it had little desks in it. Then there are tiny sleeping rooms. And within the sleeping rooms, there are these little things that look like closets, which historians um, assume are little recitation rooms for practicing um, the recitation of poems and bits and pieces of of classical literature so you know we still use that word recitation often when we split up our larger classes into smaller discussion groups but it actually comes from the fact that most of the um early education in, in consisted almost entirely of memorization so it would be given you know an excerpt of pliny and they'd have to memorize it and recite it the next morning. So they were probably in these little kind of closet-like spaces practicing, speaking aloud. So the uh, NASA Hall, which we mentioned, uh, the main building of the college, what's then the College of New Jersey, now is Princeton, is a, is a, 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 am I right in saying it's a tremendously influential building? Um, much more so, oddly enough, than sort of Jefferson's creation in the University of Virginia would, would turn out to be. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting um, uh, set of circumstances. I mean, NASA Hall's earlier than UVA. Sure. But NASA Hall, the, the sort of large, rectangular, bar-shaped building set back from the street with a lawn in front of it, with a central tower, that was copied widely in American higher education. And almost every decade going forward into the 20th century. Yeah. It's a, a very powerful image of the American college. Um, it's it's like the movie shot of a college, right? Exactly. Uh, which we take we, which we take for granted, but is it is not the way that colleges have to be. Um, 
but it's the way we assume that they are now. Right, certainly. And and it's it's not a quadrangle and it's not a a, a little village as Jefferson described the University of Virginia. The University of Virginia, I decided not to include in mm-hmm. my book because among architectural historians, a very large amount of ink has been spilled about the University of Virginia. And then it also turned out to have been a really good decision on my part because it's a fantastic uh, book, uh, depressing and terrifying book, it has come out called Educated in Tyranny about the experience of African-Americans at the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Any of the, um, I highly recommend it to your listeners um, Lewis Nelson and Maury McInnes were the editors, and many of the essays are written by architectural historians, uh, reconstructions of spaces that were inhabited by African-Americans. Um, and it, it's, um, it, it does far more than I could possibly have done with the living spaces at UVA. So I'm glad that I didn't. Yeah. And no, I the listeners to that book. I will put it in the show notes. It's, it is a fantastic book. Um, and, uh, and there's still much more to be done. This is now there'll, there'll be a, there's Alan Taylor's book on Jefferson's university is out and Andrew O'Shaughnessy will soon come out as well with Jefferson on education. So this is a time of Renaissance of understanding how, uh, the university of Virginia actually worked. Um, no, in some ways, uh, it was, but in some, in, in many ways, uh, Jefferson's vision was, uh, unsuccessful. Uh, in terms of transmitting itself to other school, schools, though, and I'm speaking, I think architecturally, that, and that there are some places that are sort of like it, but I don't think that that happened because people were copying it. But I'm is that is that right? I think that's right. Um, certainly, the imagery of UVA was copied elsewhere: uh, the red brick, the white dream, mm-hmm. an occasional dome, uh, etc. But in terms of that plan where you have the lawn and then a sidewalk, sidewalks covered, uh, little pavilions, and the the, uh, dwellings for the students that are along that uh, covered walkway that open directly to the out of doors. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That, that That was not copied widely. No. And very early on, American professors who were theoretically integrated into the school and living on campus began to pull away um, at least to faculty neighborhoods on uh, yeah. campus rather than being right right on top of their classrooms and right on top of the students. That's a very interesting week. I, I would love to spend uh, 20 minutes talking about that, but we, we won't. But it is a very interesting uh, thing. Um uh, I, I think it has something to do with the assumption being that at Oxford and Cambridge, and, and I believe in European universities as well, um, since uh, professors are clerics officially up until in Oxford, up until the 1850s, 1870s, uh, and they're supposed to not be married um, at the time, um, there's an assumption that these young unmarried men, the charismatic people like John Henry Newman, uh, are going to be teaching uh, undergraduates in their 20s, maybe into their early 30s, and then they uh, get married and become a bishop or something like that, or a canon of a cathedral, a dean of a cathedral. Um, the assumption that, however, Jefferson has is that these will be, this is essentially a plantation that he's recreating, um, but with lots of big houses all next to each other. 
um, and that there'll be families there. And that's a, that's a break from tradition. It's a break from Jefferson's uh, experience at William and Mary, and he was taught by a bunch of bachelors. Um, and that family life does not sit well with undergraduate life, and we should probably explain that. Yes, that's right. Um, there were, um, of the many inheritances from Oxford and Cambridge, just the idea of a residential college um, comes from Oxford and Cambridge. You know, most mm -hmm. ancient universities of Europe, Uppsala, Bologna, um, Utrecht, did not offer student housing. The students lived in boarding houses or they lived at home or they lived with relatives. Um, at Oxford and Cambridge, that residential experience, the dining hall, the library, um, lounges, common rooms, and the faculty living with the students in, in the you know, arrangement, that was very important at Oxford and Cambridge, it still is, and was picked up by Americans quite early on. Um, the question of American professors, uh, some of them were headed toward lives as clerics, but mm -hmm. were not. And the United States um, was divided up into so many small religious denominations that often each little religion would have its own little school. And sometimes these schools were very remote and so families, the professors had families and the families lived on campus. And the idea was that the families would set a moral uh, example. They would be exemplars of a, of a life well-lived uh, for the students to look up to. How did that work out? Well, um, there's a wonderful book by Margaret Sumner that discusses the, the, um, those, these relationships. Um, I don't think it was a disaster in the 19th century. Um, I think that the understanding was that they were young. They were sometimes as young as 14. So more like the age of students at preparatory schools today. Mm -hmm. By the way, families still live on the grounds of prep schools. So that mm -hmm. kind of a continuation of an earlier type of education. But um, the, the development of the moral character of the boy, uh, religious training, um, the uh, uh, development of discipline, a development of independence and self-reliance within the context of these colleges, that was enormously important um, all the way up until the 1870s. That was the sort of unquestioned point um, uh, of a college education. And so at, at the small liberal arts colleges anyway, the families and the role that they played were essential. When um, colleges in the United States started to think of themselves, um, well, for, first with the Morrill Act, when colleges needed to expand the curriculum, that changed. And then also when uh, in the United States, the German research university became the uh, preferred model. And you would know about that from having attended Hopkins. Yeah, yeah. The, the role of the professor as the character building uh, person in a young person's life really started to break apart. The professors didn't want that job. 
They wanted to produce their own knowledge, conduct their own research, have laboratories. And so the, the role of the professor as the moral influencer sort of uh, began to break apart. And in, the, in that um, opening, uh, that opening was filled by the invention of student affairs departments and deans of men and deans, first deans of women and then deans of men. Let's circle back to that in a second. I, you give a, a lot of attention to fraternities. Um, why? Why are fraternities important to this story? Well, funnily enough, originally I thought, oh, I'm not going to write about fraternities. It's that somebody else can write a book about fraternities. I'm writing about residence halls. And, you know, at every turn, well, you know what archival research is like. You, you, <laughs> only, it, you make up these boundaries for your project, and then at some point it hits you that the boundaries may not make sense. And because college housing is is a kind of conversation mm -hmm. um, among a couple different types, the boarding house, uh, starting in the 1870s, the fraternity, and the purpose built residence hall. Um, students after the Morrill Act, after colleges needed to expand the curriculum to include the teaching of uh, mechanics, which we would call engineering, um, uh, agriculture, and also military science. There was enormous pressure on universities to expand their facilities to accommodate the new curriculum. And although the Morrill Act money couldn't exactly be spent on um, buildings, it could be spent on other things, and they needed to scramble to get money together to build the buildings. The last thing universities were interested in constructing were residence halls. That just residence yeah. halls fell to the bottom of the list. So at the University of Michigan, uh, Cornell, uh, University of Wisconsin, they sort of stopped building residence halls. And fraternities, which became very popular in the 1870s, um, 1880s were fulfilling that role anyway, because they were offering housing for the students and students loved it. Um, the the uh, president of Cornell at one point said that they sh there's no reason to build residence halls, that it, um, the fraternities were like, were, were acting in lieu of the family. Um, and another point, the president of the University of Michigan said uh, that Oxford and Cambridge were a bad example, that living together was too much like the monkish Middle Ages. So, you know, kind of anti-Catholic <laughs> uh, jab there. So the fraternities filled an important role. However, as you know, then as now, it cost money to join a fraternity. Fraternities were exclusive. Um uh, the fraternities created a strict hierarchy among the undergraduates. And, you know, fraternities in the late 19th century, early 20th century, they dominated every aspect of campus life. It wasn't just sports. They also ran the glee club and they ran the newspaper and they, um, you know, every, and student government, every office on campus was held by uh a fraternity brother, which meant it was held by a, a, a white male. Mm -hmm. um, Jewish students were excluded, Catholic students were excluded, you know, and um, so by the 1920s, 
when deans of men started to look at this situation, they realized that the fraternities had created uh, a hierarchy that they wanted to, to break down by building residence halls that would mimic the fraternity in terms of the amenities offered. Interesting. Now, in some ways, the um, residence halls from Harvard onward um, were means of social and cultural shaping, is what I'm. Uh, and then the fraternities took up that task when colleges decided they didn't want to until they realized that fraternities were being successful at it. Is that sort of what I'm hearing? Is that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I mean, jumped around a little bit in time, but I sure, I sure. Listeners can put it together. And then I would just uh, jump in here and say that Rutgers is an interesting counterexample. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, Rutgers got its charter in 1766. Um, it's one of the original nine colonial colleges, of which it's very proud. And um, But it didn't build a dormitory until 1890. <laughs> um, the students lived in boarding houses or they lived with relatives. And I think it's partly that Rutgers was trying to save money. It's partly that Rutgers is a land grant institution and was scrambling to fulfill those needs. And it's also, I think, because Rutgers was modeled on the University of Utrecht and Utrecht didn't have any residence halls. So it just wasn't part of what the original founders who were all members, mostly members of the Dutch Reformed Church, it just wasn't part of their conception. Rutgers wasn't based on Oxford and Cambridge. Rutgers was based on a different model. Mm -hmm. Can we just say briefly about the boarding house? Because I, I suspect that some listeners uh, don't know what those are. Um, they might get the idea from the name, but maybe not. Because um, boarding houses, when you look at college memoirs in the 19th century, are awfully important to college life. Um, you know, UVA, uh, people are living off campus really quickly. Um, John Singleton Mosby, later um, Confederate uh, guerrilla and then uh, Republican politician, shoots someone in his boarding house. Um you know, there, there, a lot of things happen in boarding houses. Yeah, boarding houses were bad. <laughs> I don't think things were normal, were typical. No, the, the boarding houses ranged from sometimes buildings that if we looked at them from the outside, we would call them apartment blocks. Sometimes those were called boarding houses. But by and large, boarding houses were whatever the local housing stock was near the campus, uh, walking distance, and they were often run by elderly women, widows or um, single women, and they might have four or five rooms. Some They rented out doubles, triples. Uh, sometimes they offered food, and sometimes they just offered lodging. So sometimes you see lodging house, sometimes you see boarding house, Boarding houses uh, indicates that they were feeding the the students. The complaints from the students range from the food is terrible, there's no heat, there's bed bugs, um, possible um, complaint that you can imagine. Because obviously, the boarding house owner is trying to make money. They're not yeah. they're not there to you know provide experience or set the moral standard for X, Y, Z. A friend reminded me of a witticism of the young Calvin Coolidge when he was uh, in a boarding house at Amherst and confronted his uh, morning the breakfast meat. He demanded the landlady produce the cat so that he could be certain before he ate. 
there there are many, many stories. Um, I think that boarding houses for women were a particular flashpoint because deans of women were understandably very concerned about young women living in these boarding houses. Um, they sometimes the people running the boarding houses would allow men visitors in. Um, sometimes the um, the they were unsafe. They were dangerous. So. Um, when deans of women um, develop as a profession, um, one of the first things they t try to tackle is building residence halls for women, but since that's very expensive and time consuming. Uh, often, the first thing they did even before that was to set up a, a, set, uh, a series of inspections of the boarding houses. So there's one dean of women who visited, you know, 500 houses or something summer. Um, and the things that she, she was looking for were um, iron bedsteads because that was supposed to prevent bed bugs and was better in terms of fire prevention. She was looking for fire egress. She was looking for um, uh, a parlor on the first floor. Because the deans of women said when there's no parlor on the first floor, the girls might be tempted to entertain visitors upstairs. So if, if, a, if a boarding house didn't have these qualities, it would be knocked off of the list, hmm. the official list, which was something the deans of women kept. So we should explain uh, the now um, mysterious titles of dean of men and dean of women and how this began uh, during the with, with co-education. Right, exactly. Um, when co-ed colleges and universities, um, so in the Midwest, many, many universities were co-ed. You know, people on the, those, those coastal elites here on the East Coast tend to think of colleges like the Ivies going co-ed um, in the 70s. Of course, Cornell mm. were co-ed much, much, much earlier. But um it was common, you know, University of Michigan, uh, Missouri, University of Wisconsin, Iowa, they were all co-educational almost from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It was a sense that these women at, uh, who were in a very small minority among a lot of young men needed special protections. They needed uh, nurturing, they needed care, they needed to be in special buildings, and they needed a special administrator. And that administrator's title, the first one was called Lady Principal, and that was at Oberlin. And then most of them took the title or were given the title Deans of Women. And these Deans of Women were responsible for the intellectual development of young women, their moral development, which often boiled down to not getting pregnant, making sure they didn't get pregnant, um, or covering it up if they did. And their physical health. So the first deans of women were doctors. They were physicians. Huh. Um, and one of the deans of women, a very prominent one at the University of Michigan, had her office in the women's gymnasium. Huh. It was actually offered an office in the main administrative building, and she said she wanted to stay in the gymnasium, which I, I sort of took as a, a spatial indication of this the importance of the female body and mm -hmm. the female body in the context of the large co-ed university. So the Profession is founded by women, and the title was Deans of Women. 
that would be 1870s up to you know 19, 1910. 1910, the male students wanted these kinds of um, support. You know, there's a, a lot of time deans of women did career placement as well. Huh. Um, so deans of men sort of appear in about 1910, and then um, gradually the two offices are combined. The title becomes deans of students, which is a title we still have, and that usually falls underneath student affairs. So it's not an academic job, but rather a, a student life job. And in many cases, the men got that student student dean of students job, even though women had invented the profession. Although oh. we see that in a lot of service industries, actually. Yeah, and but they had they had dropped, but they dropped the academic component to it. Yeah, um, they gradually had dropped the the academic component. The first deans of women were professors as well as deans, but. Huh. Gradually, the dean's duties became so overwhelming. Yeah, and now we, and, and also they dropped the career advice. Well, that's interesting because now we, now we're sort of reinventing that, um, uh, the sort of one-stop shopping um, idea. And also, um, you know, we could have a whole. I should probably have a separate podcast about um, one of your colleagues at Rutgers has written an interesting book on 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 putting academics back into the door into the into residence halls. Um, so, um, let's. Uh, what um, led to this sort of gothic revival? Um, people went quadrangle mad uh, at the turn of the 20th century. Now, I have to say, this happens a lot of other places. Um, driving up Meridian Street in Indianapolis once, I saw this really elaborate perpendicular gothic church. And as you got closer to it, you realize it's like an 18, I looked it up, it was an 1898 Presbyterian church. And it's not the kind of look that John Knox would have approved of. Um, but it's this gorgeous Gothic revival Presbyterian church. It's really kind of unheard of that Presbyterians in about 50 years would turn towards um, a deeply medieval Catholic architecture, but everyone was doing it at the time. Um, why? Well, there are, two, there are two stories here. So um, one is the story of the Gothic revival and the other is the story of the quadrangle. Mm -hmm. um, the Gothic revival um, developed in the United States and in Britain at the same time. The main theorists were uh, Pugin and Ruskin. Um, the uh, original impetus was a Catholic revival. Pugin was a convert to, to Catholicism, but it very quickly became popular among high church um, builders. And then uh, within about a generation, medieval revival, so not just Gothic, but Romanesque revival and um, Italian medieval revival, and a lot of other uh, medieval styles became, um, were, were seen as a very useful, flexible set of um, architectural uh, tropes that could be used for a really wide range of building types. So that the first blush might have been for churches, chapels, um, cemeteries, but quickly the style became uh, used for any of a wide range of, of building types. Um, what did that, in America, what did that language, was it just because, it was, was it done because it was popular in Britain uh, and in, in France, um, uh, Ville de Le Duc and so on, but was it, was it, was there a moral content to that architecture? Originally, very much so. Originally, uh, both Pugin and Ruskin emphasized the morality, 
that they believed was inherent in medieval architectural styles. Um, the, for example, this would be an argument, you could find it in, it's definitely in Pugin, little in Ruskin and also in Vili Leduc, that a Gothic cathedral is more honest and therefore more moral because you can see the structure. So when you're standing outside a Gothic cathedral, you see the flying buttresses and those flying buttresses explain to you how the building is standing up. And when you go inside a Gothic cathedral and you look up, you see the webbed vaults. And that's what makes the building stand. And that was considered more honest than let's say a previous generation of a building that's made out of bricks, but covered with stucco that's supposed to look like stone that's supposed to be a Greek temple. Mm. It's considered dishonest. Mm -hmm. That's the beginnings of the Gothic revival in both the United States and Britain um, and France and Germany, but quickly it becomes just another style that could be swapped in and out for different purposes. And there are cases, uh, Latrobe, when he designed the cathedral for Baltimore, presented the, um, uh, the diocese with both a Gothic plan and a classical plan. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not as if suddenly everyone shifts to Gothic. Mm -hmm. It's not as if it was such a compelling moral position that you, if you built in the Gothic style, you would never ever build a, uh, a, a Greek revival house. That's not true. Lots and lots of people's back and forth. Sure. The trope so was bilingual. Typical of the 19th century. So that's, that's one line. Um, Gothic or medieval revival, was popular in the US because it hearkened back to Oxford and Cambridge. Hmm. Not that Oxford and Cambridge didn't also have fantastic classical architecture, but it was the sort of the Gothic imagery that uh, was often relied upon. And so you can find, I think the first Gothic revival building in the US on a college campus is at Kenyon College. And then, um, College in Connecticut has an had an amazing, massive set of quadrangles that were designed by a British architect. They weren't all built, but a big chunk of it was built. And then the University of Chicago, um, 1893, easy year to remember um, because it's the same year as the fair. And that was a really well thought out, carefully organized set of Gothic revival quadrangles. Mm -hmm which were specifically, sorry, specifically the goal at the University of Chicago was to combine the best of the research university with the best of Oxford and Cambridge as residential colleges. So that was a really clear intention. So let's then talk about quadrangles. Um, what did the quadrangle um, revival mean? What were, they, what were people trying to do when they recreated the quadrangle in American schools? The quadrangle, so well, quadrangle has two meanings. So um, sometimes when people say quadrangle, they're referring to a rectangular lawn that's surrounded by usually rectangular buildings, and they call the lawn the quad or the quadrangle. Mm -hmm. or the quad. That's not the definition I'm using right here. I'm using, an, I mean, both definitions are valid, but I'm using a different, referring to a different type of quadrangle, which is a square donut. So you've got buildings on four sides and 
In the interior, there's a courtyard that's grass usually and open to the sky. Um, that form can be found in medieval monasteries. It can be found in Italian palazzi. So, you know, those the buildings in Florence where the exterior is very fortified looking and the interior is kind of a, a more uh, elegant, gracious outdoor courtyard, not usually uh, with grass, but rather paved. Um, the, the quadrangle was the most common form at Oxford and Cambridge. And at Oxford and Cambridge, there tended to be an early quadrangle based on the medieval monastery. And then subsequently, they would build additional quadrangles kind of um, in a series. So you get a series of these square donuts lined up in a row. Um, we don't see that as often in the US. I mean, University of Chicago um, and Trinity College in Connecticut both have that. Um, but the advantage of this quadrangle, the square donut shape, is it creates a private outdoor room, which is, think about that courtyard. So either there's a porter, a porter's house and a porter, or maybe it's just a gate with a key. But the only people who go inside the quadrangle are the people who live there. And they have a, a library, common areas, um, sometimes their own dining halls. It was a way of creating a smaller community within a larger university. And I can say, can say from experience that works. I mean, good and bad. And the bad part is everyone knows each other's business um, because yeah. you can see everybody. That's right. That's right. And then to um, uh, complicate this a little bit more, the quadrangle at Oxford and Cambridge and the earliest quadrangles in the U.S. use the entryway or staircase plan, which means from the inside of the courtyard, you walk into a door and there's a staircase going up and the rooms are off of the staircase. So that means that the social groups form vertically up and down the staircase. Um, that is the most traditional form and Americans stuck to that for a very long time. But you also have a quadrangle where the four sides are made up of buildings with internal corridors. Um, the internal corridor creates a much less porous and more easily uh, watched population. You know, you can't be coming and going at all hours because there's one central door. Um, but you could still call that a quadrangle if the four sides of it um, form that outdoor room. Yeah, uh, and I've, I've been in a place we had both. We had the central corridor and multiple stairways. Very confusing. Um, yeah, that that I think was often a, a way of for architects to sort of hedge their bets and give the mm -hmm. a piece of what they wanted. Uh, that was the case at Yale um, when Morse and Stiles colleges were built by the architect um, Erosarian. He provided both entryways because the the um, masters, as they were called at the time, of the Yale colleges want they specifically said they wanted the staircase entries, but. Saarinen added interior corridors, uh, hmm. just makes it so much easier to move through the building. Um, 
the sort of would the next great revolution be then the the high rise revolution and uh, how did that and, and and sort of the immediate counter revolution? Yes, the high rise res, uh, would be the next um, big step in the in the architectural history of American residence halls. So after World War II, um, with the GI Bill and the enormous influx of students, in some universities. Uh, their undergraduate population doubled. Uh, hmm. Nationwide, the the undergraduate population nearly doubled. I think it was you know forty eight percent more students or something. And then it leveled off a little bit, and then it went up again in the middle of the sixties. But um, it was an enormous uh, set of problems that needed to be solved. By that time, after World War Two, the the profession of student affairs was fairly well established. Uh, deans of students sort of rushed into these discussions and argued keeping students on campus to create community, to make the larger universities feel smaller, um, to help kind of control student behavior. And it was also the heyday of modernism in global architecture. So it was possible to build a 9, 10, 14 story building with a steel frame or a concrete frame. And there was a great deal of confidence in air conditioning and elevators and packing as many students on a small <laughs> as you could was considered the obvious next step. And it provided, it quickly provided like um, enormous parking lots too. Um, you could put them all around these these towers, um, not necessarily a garden and trees, just enormous parking lots. Well, you bring up a very good point. I mean, the these high rises are almost always presented by the architects, and if 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 uh, universities are lucky, landscape architects, mm. um, as a inter as an interpretation of the concept of the tower in the park, which is associated with Le Corbusier. Um, and the concept of the tower in the park was, why would you waste the grassy ground level by covering every inch of it with buildings when you can build tall, lofty skyscrapers, people can live in apartments in the air, the skyscrapers need to be fairly far apart from one another so that the green space in between them can flourish and um, you will have this lovely concept of the tower in the park, fresh air, etc. Now, what often happens, A, they never plant the park, and B, the buildings are so close together, there is no, there is no sense of that, um, these isolated needle-like towers. So, um, but yeah, so they often end up being um, hardscape. Yeah, I was, uh, remember at the University of Delaware, um, they still have them, these uh, towers, I think the DuPont Towers, naturally, uh, north of campus, north of town, really. And they sort of sit by themselves, uh, isolated from everything, uh, surrounded by parking lots. And one upperclassman explained to me that really a tower is fantastic because the staircase is a great place to vomit. So there was that. I guess oh, it just drained down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's uh, it's an interesting question that that time that these uh, campus towers are being built, of course, the other place they were being built was in housing projects. So that um, this is sort of a massive experiment in architecture, architectural psychology upon the, the poor and the undergraduate. 
Well, that's true. Although wealthy people also lived in. That's true. Yes, I, I should say that's true. Society Hill Towers. In yeah, yeah. Philadelphia or whatever. But but I was very, you know, this is that comparison had been weighing on me um, uh, as I did this research, and I was very pleased to find in the archives here at Rutgers that when Rutgers built the river dorms, which are these three identical brick slabs along the river, um, that the dean of men and the architect got in a kind of back and forth argument about balconies. Hmm. Architects wanted balconies on every room. Uh, the dean of men was horrified by this idea. <laughs> with all kinds of reasons why this was a terrible idea. But then the Dean of Men um, said in a letter, I understand why you're trying to do this. You don't want the buildings to look like housing projects. Mm -hmm. So then I really knew that the colleges were aware of the similarities and trying to distinguish themselves. So although it's not universally true, a lot of times you can tell like in New York City, you can tell low-income housing from middle-income housing by whether or not they're balconies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there was, let's briefly say that there was almost immediately a counter-revolution against this the, the high-rise concept. Could you describe that briefly? Sure. Yes, there was uh, very quickly among student affairs professionals, and and this holds to this day. I. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm and talk to student affairs professionals, you know, a table of 10 people. Is there anyone here who would like to defend the skyscraper dormitory? Nope. Yeah. Um, so the, they were too institutional. The students felt like a cog in a giant machine. They were dangerous, right? If there was a fire, you can imagine people were jumping out of the windows. I mean, so many things happened and so many bad things happened and were blamed on those buildings. But, mm -hmm. Very quickly, there was pushback. And where my book ends is around 1968, you know, a nice firm periodization. Um, everything changed. Uh, the relationship between students and administrators, the reasons that students go to college, the relationships between men and women, um, the role of women in influencing the kind of uh, buildings that got built, including residence halls. So I end with the example of uh, Kresge College at uh, UC Santa Cruz, which was designed to be everything that a skyscraper dormitory is not. So mm -hmm. it's regularized. It's not, it doesn't have any utilitarian feel at all. You know, you can't, this room is not like that room. Everything's slightly different. It's, it's low rise. It's based on the model of an Italian hill town which was supposed to be casual, um, kind of like a rambling crooked street with people looking out from their balconies onto a, you know, onto a little compressed pedestrian street, outdoor cafes, um, little stairs and benches for people to sit. Um, and the students were very direct about the fact that they wanted an anti-institutional residence hall which is kind of funny because at the end of the day, a residence hall is an institution, but uh, the students wanted to avoid that as much as possible. And the architects were uh, really excited about the process and sort of threw themselves into providing. It's very interesting. Um, the, the first protest that began at Berkeley really against the, well, they were waving the computer punch cards and saying, do not fold, spindle, or mutilate. 
um, they those protests seem to have a lot to do with sort of the feeling of being I don't, I don't know if they're high rises at Berkeley, but it's a lot of the feeling of being herded into those high rises, um, the institutional feeling, uh, the feeling of of depersonalization and deindividualization that uh, so many people still see. You know, as you say in, in college administration, when they when they see those student high rises. Yeah, that's right. It was that sense of not wanting to be a cog in the giant military industrial educational machine. Mm -hmm. The multiversity. Um, right. Let's uh, finish up by you have a fantastic uh, last chapter where you are talking about um, current trends. Uh, one of the nice things about architectural historians is you you do your own uh, photography. Um, a lot cheaper that way, I guess, for everybody. Um, but you have some great pictures of, of various things, uh, including um, uh, water parks, uh, more or less. But um, wh why do people live in a residence hall today, uh, given that, as you say, you, you, you pose this problem? Um, everything's changed about American higher education over 300 years, 400, almost 400 years. Um, and yet we still have residence halls. Uh, why? Why do people do it? Well, um, it goes back to the first comment I made about networking, about mm -hmm. social mm -hmm. development, about building uh, social ties, uh, both for friendship and but but also for business, for future um, for future career development. It's partly because it's fun. Yeah, I think it's yeah fun. Partly because if the parents had that experience, they want their young adult children to have that experience. Mm -hmm. um, and it's the sense that it's a rite of passage, that if you don't, if you stay at home or you go to school online or you commute, you're somehow missing out on something. You're missing out on the so-called collegiate experience. Yeah, I, I don't, I can't, you know, we had, I just felt sorry for commuter students when I was an undergraduate. Um, they just weren't having as much fun. It was that's pretty simple. Um, well, it's, it, at Rutgers, the student clubs meet at ten o'clock at night, so yeah. the commuters are going to participate in the clubs. They have to get here at seven to get a parking space, and they have to stay till midnight. Yeah, and, and speaking, I mean, we're speaking of diversity and, and character and exclusion. Um, you know, uh, we really excluded uh, commuter students in, in many, I think they're probably the most looked down upon of, as I was thinking about this, of all the sort of people on uh, a mostly residential campus. Things are made very difficult for them. Yeah, it was, um, uh, there's, a, there's a section in my book about um, the women's dormitory, the first women's dormitory at Howard University. Yeah. So I was scouring um, uh, Kamala Harris's yeah. note to see if she lived in there, but <laughs> she did live in there. But anyway, for for your listeners, there there is a you know I do track the history of uh, uh, racial discrimination in public housing, and then there is a section about a really terrific um, dormitory at Howard it's, that's built on the quadrangle model yeah. and was a state of the art. Uh, building at its time. But so to get back to the situation today, um, I, uh, you know, I guess maybe at some point I'll revise the, the epilogue because uh, COVID-19 has changed. Or actually what it's really done is, is pull to the surface 
um, pull up in high relief the themes that are already in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. It's such a, I mean, that's what I thought about it when I read it in July. Um, it's such a timely book for that reason. Um, much, you had no idea this was going to happen, but it, it puts everything in the book in very high relief. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the extent to which colleges are um, turning themselves inside out to try to provide um, a way for students to physically be on campus. Um, and that, even though they, they will be taking their classes virtually, mm-hmm. you really mm-hmm. see what, what counts. Mm-hmm. Um, the, other, the other thing I would, would, would mention is that, and this is also related, related to COVID, but also a theme in the book, is that the, the residential experience is becoming more and more and more of a luxury. And my fear is that the gap between the haves and the have-nots will widen so that the very wealthy go to college in person, have their networking opportunities, and poorer students will be taking their classes online, whether it's for, you know, whether it's uh, for profit or not for profit, but they're still going to be, you know, at home at their kitchen table, taking their online classes. And, you know, that's not going to lead to any networking, right? I mean, let's go to MIT because the other students at MIT are brilliant. and They're going to start their first business with their, you know, the kid who lived across the hall from them. Nobody's going to meet anybody in the chat room of an online class and say, let's start the next big, you know, internet unicorn. It's not going to happen. No. And and, and lots of other things aren't going to happen either. Um, uh, These are, and this might sound silly and trivial. This is not about education, but if a parent dies, um, there's no one's shoulder to cry on. Um, when you're an undergraduate and to build those bonds that will last you for the rest of your life. Um, and those, you know, as, as Chambliss has shown, and this is sociology, um, it's those it, having those five deep friendships in college um, actually make you, makes you a better student. Um, to do that online then is uh, t- to go against uh, your it's to push against uh, re- really strong social and even psychological constraints. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, finally, uh, I'm just, well, we could talk about a lot of other things, uh, but I, I, I am curious. There's a period in American history where, as you said, in the 1870s, um, you know, Johns Hopkins went... 25 years without undergraduates and then another 20 years without a dormitory for them. Um, there, there are other schools that just say, why bother? The fraternities will do it for us, as you, as you already mentioned. But now dormitories are, are big money for colleges. Um, and they are part of the marketing brochure uh, to offer that luxury experience, which is why I, I think you're quite right. And I, I feel the same way that soon this will be something that only the, the wealthiest possible students can, can enjoy. Um, but could we just talk about the, I mean, colleges make money on the dormitory. They might break even other places, but they're making money on the dormitory. Well, is that, is that wrong or am I, am I misunderstanding that? They're supposed to make money. 
Um, The student affairs department, and in particular the residence life department, is a financial silo of sorts where the central administration taxes them, you know, just takes, I don't know, like 45% off the top or something. Mm -hmm. It's actually surprisingly difficult to predict yield, you know, how many students who say they're coming fall actually show up. And it's also surprisingly difficult to um, to have exactly the right number of, of beds. That's the terminology that residents like people use to have the right number of beds so that you make enough money to pay off the debt service on the previous the previous generation of residence halls. Um, usually, universities are building new residence halls, um, and it's it's a it's not a pyramid scheme, but it's it's a kind of rolling economic condition. Mm-hmm. Old buildings, uh, recently built buildings and buildings that are being planned. It, it never stops, but it is hard for them to make money. You'd be surprised. And okay. especially hard now that so many private, there are, well, not so many, but a handful of private real estate developers development corporations have decided to focus on the luxury student dormitory near campus. So these are not run by student affairs, although sometimes they do allow for an RA or somebody to be in the building. Um, They sometimes even arrange for um, roommate swaps and things like that, but they're basically private apartment houses and they're drawing students out of and away from the on-campus housing. Um, the other thing I would add is there are historians and of education and social scientists who've studied this quite closely. And what they um, discovered is that for the absolute most prestigious universities, so the Ivies, Hopkins, uh, uh, Chicago, Stanford, Duke, the students go there for the academics. Uh-huh. They don't really move fanciest residence halls. They'll go anyway. Those schools are competing among themselves, but that's it. Because someone gets in, they're not going to turn it down because they don't like the dormitory. Right. But Go one level below that, and then you go all the way down in terms of (laughs) admission rates of 99.9%. Then it becomes, attracting students becomes all about perceived comfort. Yes. If you're going to major in business or psychology, those courses are offered everywhere. It doesn't really matter which branch campus of the University of of the Florida State System you go to. You're just going to go to the one that has the nice new dorm that you saw in the bus tour. So it, it is enormously important in all but the very, very most elective colleges. Mm-hmm. Let's um, conclude. I wanted to, I was curious, your previous book was on. <laughs> My previous book was on the architecture of psychiatric hospitals. So um, was this a natural transition? Um <laughs> It was a natural transition, um, the logical extension. Um, well, in fact, 
Lots of psychiatric, lots of 19th century lunatic asylums, as they were called in the 19th century, were designed by people who also built dormitories. Yeah. And, and, and one of Jefferson's overseers of, at UVA uh, went on to design the, was it Eastern Virginia? Um, uh, yeah, Eastern State. Yeah. 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 It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful lunatic asylum, um, as they would have said. These were some of the largest buildings, as we've already said, in their time. And you wouldn't trust that to someone who wasn't a major architect. Yeah. Um, and then there are lots of, um, you know, kidding aside, similarities. There are communal houses. You've got hundreds of people under one roof. You have to mm-hmm. worry about fireproofing. You have to worry about surveillance, who's coming and who's going. And then another, another nod to COVID-19, you have to worry about ventilation. If there's anything that I've studied that is unglamorous, it's the history of ventilation. And now here, (laughs) years, and I can't look at the newspaper app on my phone without reading about my uh, a friend who's an architect said uh, everyone thinks that when they join the firm, they're going to be designing beautiful buildings, and instead you end up designing air conditioning ducts and where they go. Right. Yeah. Move that duck seven inches to the west. You can't do that. It'll cost five hundred thousand dollars. That's that's the only thing. And now it's not air conditioning ducts. It's windows that open and transom windows and, um, you know, uh, fans on the roof that draw hot air up. All of the same ventilation techniques that were used in the 19th century institution. Exactly. (laughs) So, yeah. So, so uh, I'm curious, what's, uh, is this going to be a trilogy? What's, what's the next, uh, what's the next thing on sort of public institutions? And I, I, cause the other thing about, uh, uh, homes for the mentally ill, or I, I don't know how to put this correctly anymore, um, is uh, is that they also respond to cultural and intellectual changes over time, uh, as do dormitories. Um, so, what's the is there uh, what's your next project? Well, I'm not sure what my next book length project is. My my immediate next project is uh, r- related to my first book, which was a book about the architecture of Victorian science museums. Oh well, yeah. Natural History Museums. And here at Rutgers, we have a really special building, the Geology Museum, which um, I think was the first, we're, we're pretty sure was the first geology museum. Uh, definitely on a college campus, def- and possibly in the US. Now you can't say first natural history museum, that would be wrong. It has to be just geology. But um, it's related to the land grant because geology included the subject of soil, and also fertilizer, because fertilizer was sort of natural minerals and things before there was chemically made, you know, artificial chemical fertilizer. So it was directly related to the land grant and related to the, the teaching of agriculture. And it's in very, very good condition, um, shockingly good condition, because it was um, opened in 1872. And it's unique and it's very special. And I'm with a former student writing a National Historic Landmark uh, nomination for it. A long process, but, but a worthy cause. Well, my guest today has been Carla Yanni. She's the author of Living on Campus, an architectural history of the American dormitory, which is a fantastic survey of the social, cultural, and intellectual changes in American higher education based on how students live together. Carla, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. 
It's been my great pleasure. Thank you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 